Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you again, albeit online, but I'm sure that uh, we will soon be back to our in-person gatherings. Now, this week, we're in week four of our series, Made for Mission. And the title this week is, Who is My Mission? Now, if you've missed the previous three weeks, then a quick recap is um, week one, Corrine um, told us that we're all called. And if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, then you've been put on this planet for a reason. God has strategically placed you where you live, work and play. So you can join him in his mission. Then in week two, Heather asked the question, what's my mission? In a nutshell, your mission is the same as Jesus' mission. It's to grow in relationship with God and reduce him to others. And then last week, Stuart unpacked how we actually introduce him. The question being, what's my message? And we learned that it's simply sharing with others how the goodness of God has intersected in your life. So, who is my mission? Well, the picture you're going to see on the screen now is my good young friend, Curtis Brown. With his wife, Mariam, he leads the Open Space Church based in Gosforth. And he knows that his mission, his purpose is to preach the gospel on the streets of our cities and our towns here in the Northeast. He's bringing good news to those who would listen. He's a powerful man of God. He doesn't worry about conflict or confrontation or criticism. He cares only what Jesus thinks of him. And he's led many souls to Christ, even baptizing them in the North Sea. So today we're going to answer this question, who is my mission? Now I get it that I'm supposed to share how God's goodness has intersected with my life. But who with? Do I just approach random people in the street and start talking? Well, Curtis, he just speaks in public so that those that have an ear, let them hear the word of God. God has uniquely placed him in that role at this time in history and this geography. And he's fulfilling that purpose. And let me say this, if you just happen to be here watching this because you were trolling through the internet or maybe you just wanted to find out a little bit about this Christianity thing, then God has something to say to you. You're not here by accident and he's grabbing your attention. And you might be thinking, oh, so what you're saying that I'm the mission? Well, what we're going to talk about is still very applicable to you because as you investigate Jesus and his claims, you need to know that today's topic is a major theme in his life. It's impossible to truly be a follower of Jesus and ignore what we are talking about today. In John chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25, it says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knew all people, and he knew what was inside them. And as he started his ministry, 
he gives us two polar opposite examples of the kinds of people that God loves to work in. First of all, Jesus has a conversation with a very religious man named Nicodemus. Now, we're not studying that conversation today, except to say that the author, John, deliberately placed it before the scene described at Jacob's well. Jesus has a spiritual conversation with someone you'd expect to have it all figured out. Think of the, the pastor of a church, not me. But ends up correcting some basic beliefs that Nicodemus was holding. And just because someone appears to be a super Christian doesn't mean that they're not still struggling with questions about their faith. Then Jesus leaves there and he has a profound conversation with a woman. Jesus makes an important point to her that no one is off limits when it comes to talking about God. And the geography, I guess, helps us to understand this passage or this story. And we read that Jesus left Judea to go to Galilee. Now, most Jews actually making that trip would make the trip longer than it had to be just so they could avoid going through Samaria. The Jewish people despised the Samaritans because they saw them as sellouts. They were the people that intermarried with the people of the land, so they were only half Jewish. And what's interesting is that Jesus actually went out of his way to go through Samaria. And the scene that uh, we read or we listened to earlier about this trip is probably the one that's mentioned on that trip. Now, I'm sure that there were other encounters. But this is the one that we read about, so it must be incredibly significant. So Jesus sits down at the well by himself and we learn that the disciples have gone into town to grab some food. So as we seek to answer this question, who's my mission? It's interesting to think how the different people in this story apparently saw this woman. How did the Samaritan woman see herself? She came to the well at noon and she was filled with shame over her past. How did the disciples see her? Well, they're not really in this scene at all, are they? They passed her by on the way and they never talked to her when they returned. She was unimportant to them. But how did Jesus see her? She was worth it. It was worth going out of his way so he could meet her. It was worth crossing over social barriers to spend time with her. And she was persistent, we might say. Where do we see this persistence? Well, we have to check out what happens later on and I'll come to that. But you see, we all make judgments about people without having the slightest knowledge of them and their circumstances. We know nothing maybe of their character or their history or the problems they're facing, the challenges that they're facing when we meet them. And I have to confess that I challenge myself every time I fall into this trap, every time I make this judgment. Because Jesus looked beyond external appearances. I remember one night on the Mighty Oaks coffee cart, I saw this big stocky guy approaching us. And my first thought was, well, he was shaven headed. Um, 
he looked full of hell, so to speak. And I was anxious, a bit nervous about actually approaching him. I'm thinking, oh, well, he's not going to want to stop and talk to me. He's not going to want a cup of coffee um, and, and a chat about life. But anyway, um, as he came by, I, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, how are you doing? Would you like a, would you like a coffee? He stopped and we chatted. And about an hour later, he left after one of the most illuminating and sincere conversations about life and faith that I'd had in a long while. The woman in the story had a lot of things from her past that she was not proud of. In the first century Middle Eastern culture, it was a very man-centered world. Women were seen as second-class citizens and men had all the power. It was completely acceptable for a man to have several premarital sexual relationships. And if a husband wanted to divorce his wife, all he had to do was give her a certificate and kick her to the curb. Some things never change. So this isn't a woman that jumps around from man to man. This is probably a woman who has been used and abused over and over by multiple men. She knows what it's like to feel pain and loss. And she's probably carrying some bitterness along with her shame. Yet here she is. She's not given up. She's still going. She's still, day after day, going out to the well to get water. Maybe everyone else missed something about her that Jesus saw because he knew what was inside her. And this becomes obvious later in the story. The best part, if we move to John chapter 4, verses 39 to 42, it says this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe that just because of what you said, now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Wow. So the very next verse says that Jesus left for Galilee after two days. So what have we got here? Well, what we've actually got is an impromptu spiritual revival among the Samaritans that goes on for two days. And how does it happen? The very woman that people had cast aside comes back into the village of the people who had rejected her and convinces them to meet her new friend, Jesus. Now, I don't imagine she went handing out a few flyers. It wouldn't have been easy. She pleaded with people to come and meet him, the man who told her everything she'd ever done. She wouldn't take no for an answer. How many times do you think she went back into town over those two days to convince people to come and meet Jesus? She is one special lady and one of the most surprising and dynamic leaders of the whole New Testament. See, it doesn't matter about your past doesn't matter about the baggage that you carry with you. It doesn't matter about the shame of things um, 
that you did or the words that you said. When you meet Jesus, everything changes. Listen to this powerful story told by uh, Tony Campolo, um, great guy, author, um, met him just a few years back um, and quite inspirational in many regards. And he tells this story. A new recruit went into training at Paris Island hoping to become a Marine. He was one of those young men who seemed to be a bit out of step with the norm and he easily became the subject of ridicule for those who enjoy picking off beat people. In the particular barracks to which this young Marine was assigned, there was an extremely high level of meanness. The other young men did everything they could to make a joke of the new recruit and to humiliate him. One day, someone came up with the bright idea that they could scare the daylights out of this young Marine by dropping a disarmed hand grenade onto the floor and pretending it was about to go off. Everyone else knew about this, and they were all ready to get a big laugh. The hand grenade was thrown into the middle of the floor, and the warning was yelled, It's a live grenade! It's a live grenade! It's going to explode! They fully expected that the young man would get hysterical and perhaps jump out of a window. Instead, the young Marine fell on the grenade, hugged it to his stomach, and yelled to the other men in the barracks, Run for your lives! Run for your lives! You'll be killed if you don't! The other Marines froze in stillness and shame. They realised that the one they had scorned was the one ready to lay down his life for them. And that's how it was with Jesus. That's how it is with Jesus. You see, you have no idea what's inside of people. So who is your mission? And I think Jesus was teaching multiple lessons to multiple audiences here. Jesus' primary focus was making disciples, so he used every scenario to teach them a lesson in ministry. The first lesson doesn't necessarily apply to everyone. While we're all called to share our faith, there were certain people that have the gift of, ev of the evangelist. And my guess is that Jesus desired that every one of his disciples would have this gift. He would hand the keys to them a few years later after he went back to heaven. So this was huge for them. And they would go on to spread the gospel. But they had to learn this lesson. So who's my mission? Everybody. If you found that you have a relatively easy time sharing your faith with other people, there's a good chance that you have the spiritual gift of evangelism. If you've seen God use you to reach a number of people, there's a good shot that God has given you this gift. Maybe you've never shared your faith, but God has made you an influencer in other areas of your life. And with the right training, you can have this gift too. Evangelists see opportunities that other people don't. They're able to move ordinary conversations into ones that bring up the gospel. Sharing their faith is not a duty they feel guilty about, but it's a delight they love to do every chance they get. 
I think if I'm honest, I've gone through periods in my Christian life where I've felt like an evangelist. I've felt like I had the gift of the evangelist. And I've gone through other times where I feel the opposite. And I've acted like the opposite. And I'm probably in a bit of a dry spell in those terms too right now. But that's not for this discussion. That's for another time. You see, I think of people like Lex Hines in our fellowship. He is burdened for people, those who are lost. And he sets out his stall to tell them, literally, here in Gateshead. And many of you might be thinking, well, I'm pretty sure that I don't have that gift, so I'm off the hook. The lesson we learn from Jesus to the Samaritan woman is, God has strategically placed you where you're at to reach one or someone. I'll say that again. God has strategically placed you where you're at to reach one or someone. Notice this woman went back to the town where she was from. It was probably out of a comfort zone, but she felt compelled to share with those who did life with her. There's a Greek word that's mentioned throughout the New Testament and that, that helps us to answer this question. And that word is oikos, O-I-K-O-S. Hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It was the ancient Greek equivalent of a household, a house or a family. An average oikos is usually made up of about 8 to 15 people. In Luke chapter 8, the demon-possessed man was told to return to his household, oikos, and describe the great things done for him. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus was told salvation had come to his household, oikos. In John 4, the centurion's whole household, oikos, was saved following the healing of his son. In Acts 10, Cornelius was a righteous man who feared God with all his household, oikos. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer has his entire household, oikos, baptized in the middle of the night. So what does that look like for us? God has intentionally and strategically placed you in your family, your friendships, neighborhood and workplace to reach out to those you're already doing life with. As Heather informed us a couple of weeks back, one easy way to think about it is to think of the word France. So who are your friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, and to keep your eyes, and I would say ears, open for those opportunities. Okay, I guess this is something I should do, but I don't know. Can I give you a simple prayer that was taught by Hal Seed? He's the pastor of the New Song Church in Oceanside, California. Perhaps it could change your life. Would you start praying this prayer on a daily basis? I guess this is our challenge for this week. This prayer, Lord, I don't ask you for much today, but would you give me your heart for the lost? I'll repeat that. Lord, I don't ask you for much today, but would you give me your heart for the lost? Let's practice by saying that together right now. 
Lord, I don't ask you for much today, but would you give me your heart for the lost? Good job. That's easy. Let's make that a habit. Maybe you could just kind of post it on your computer or on your desk or on the front of your Bible or somewhere that you look very often. Pray daily. This is the sort of thing that God loves to answer. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks that you've put us where we are today. We give you thanks for our family, our friends, our acquaintances, our classmates, our neighbours. And we ask you, Lord, that we may keep our eyes and our ears open for the opportunities to share what you've done for us, to share the good news that comes with knowing Jesus and having you in our lives. Father, be with us this week. Guide us, keep us, protect us, encourage us and embolden us in Jesus' name. Amen.